here's the deal. Um, tonight, I want us to start by sharing a story. And, and when I look at scripture and I look at how Jesus taught, he would often teach through story. He taught through parables all the time because Jesus understood what we know now empirically is that when people understand and attach things to story, it sticks with us longer. And, and, and this story specifically, there's a few things that I have to share uh, that are going to be important. And I, I need specifically uh, the ladies to be in agreement with me on this. And I think you will. Um, would you guys agree that uh, guys, namely like high school and college guys, are kind of dumb? Okay. So, and now, 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 fellas, fellas, fellas in the room, fellas in the room, fellas in the room. And I, when I say dumb, I don't mean unintelligent. Let's be clear. Now, fellas in the room, do just do you agree? We love to do dumb stuff. Yeah. So here, here, here's the deal. My life has been a myriad of dumb, stupid things that I have done uh, because I was just curious if they would work, right? Like, we used to play this game called the dumb guy game. Uh, we literally called it that, where we would, like, this is like 15 years ago, we would take a giant ball, like a red playground ball, get in a group of, a uh, circle with a bunch of guys, throw it as high as we can, look down and just wait for it to hit somebody. Like, there's no winner in that game, except for the guys that get to laugh at the dude who gets drilled in the head, right? Like, those are the kind of things that guys do. Like, I have never seen a group of girls willingly get together and play a game like that ever in my life. And I've seen guys do stuff like that all the time. So this is a stupid guy story that I'm about to share. Um, when, I, when I was in college, we used to hang out down in uh, Clifton. I had a bunch of friends down at UC, uh, and we would hang out with them kind of late at night and uh, I was down there one day and one of my friends had ridden his bike, uh, brought it in and had this bike lock uh, that you see here, one of these things uh, and I love just fidgeting with stuff, if you've not met me, I'm super ADHD, I'm all over the place, it's probably no surprise to you uh, and so I'm just flipping around, playing with it, looking at it and seeing it and as I look at it, I'm like man, this kind of would fit like right around somebody's head, uh, right on their neck um, and as I'm looking at this, I realize, like, I'm, like, kind of eyeing it up a little bit. Um, and, and everybody knows that you have that one friend who goes to sleep before everybody else, right? If you're that, hey, I'm glad that's you. Uh, you'll probably wish that wasn't you, at least in the midst of this story. Um, for me, that was my friend Matt. My friend Matt would go to bed before everyone else. He'd be like, well, it's 8.30, time to turn on in. And so Matt was asleep. It's like 11.30, and we're like, what if we go into his room, pin him down, put this around his neck, and just see what happens, right? And there's no plan after that, really. Um, and so me, my friend Scotty, we go, we run into his room, Scotty jumps on one shoulder, I jump on the other, 
and we pin him down. We put this bike lock around his neck, and we laugh, and we leave. And his response out the door is like, I don't care, I'll sleep with the dog. I'm like, all right. Because he was also one of those like people that didn't want to wake up, didn't want to uh, do anything like that. Well, fast forward about two hours. We're still hanging out, talking about life, uh, you know, having deep theological conversations and stuff, like actually. Uh, and so we're in the midst of one of these conversations, and it's probably 1, 1.30 a.m., uh, and all of a sudden there's this blur that goes by me, and my friend Matt jumps on the chair where my friend Scotty is, and he pins him to the chair and says, give I like to control things. 
I, I like to have things buttoned up. I like to know how things are happening. Like, I, like, people look at me, and I'm a pretty fun-loving guy. Uh, I, I don't know if you care about Enneagram stuff, because I don't really. I'm a seven, right? Like, I'm all over the place, but my wing is an eight, right? Like, I like to control things. I like to, I like to have a knowing, working knowledge of what's going on. And I like to do stuff on my own. And here's the problem with that. As I'm doing these things on my own, I oftentimes don't lean into what God is calling me into. I, I try and blaze my own path. I, I, I have an idea of what God wants to do. My idea of what God wanted to do tonight was to have Alvin here speaking. I, there's nothing wrong with having Alvin here speaking, but God had a different plan for tonight, right? Like, my plan for the opener last night was that keys would work and be working. I don't know if you noticed that was not happening. That didn't happen. So God is constantly bringing things into my life to keep me humble, to keep me in check, to make sure that I am aware that he is the ultimate one that is in control. And, and here's the thing. We were not wired to have full control. We're not wired. We're actually wired for us better than ourselves and who desires for us to walk in step with him day after day after day. But here's the thing. If we're naturally created for surrender, but we're also somewhat naturally opposed to it, we're strong-willed individuals that want to do our own thing, why should we actually do it? Here's the thing. We do it of who Jesus is. And so what, that's what we're going to look at tonight, the person and character of Jesus and why we should actually surrender to him. It says in Isaiah 9-2, and is in, quoted in Matthew 4, it says this, it says, the people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So we were living in darkness, but now, there is light. If you've ever been in darkness, real, real darkness, real brokenness, when you see that light, when you get a glimpse of that light, it is all you can think about. It is all you want. For those of you that don't know my story, I grew up as an atheist. I grew up mocking the church, making fun of Christians. And when I got a glimpse of the light of Jesus in a real and authentic way, I wanted nothing else but that. I chased it. I ran after it. And I've realized that all the while, Jesus was actually chasing after me, running me down. It goes on in Matthew 4 after it says that. It says, from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come. So why do we surrender? It's because the kingdom of heaven has come near. And here's the thing. Repentance and life change only happens in proximity to the king. The only thing that is ever going to actually change your life for the better is proximity to King Jesus. That's it. Everything else is going to be fleeting. Everything else is going to be temporary. Everything else may feel good for a minute, but it's not going to be lasting. It's not going to be life-changing. It's proximity to the king. 
that brings about true life change, true repentance. He goes on, and we see this in action. It says, as he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is now called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Immediately. I don't do anything immediately. How many of you guys have had a situation where maybe you're playing Overwatch or something else, and your mom calls down and like, hey, I need you to come get this. You're like, just a second, mom. Right? Like we've all been in that boat. Some of you are like, who plays Overwatch? Uh, I, I, sorry. Like I don't do anything immediately. I am the king of procrastination. I start my day by hitting snooze, right? Like I don't even wake up. I'm like, nah, it's time to sleep some more. Like immediately is not a part of my regimen. And yet, was something about the person of Jesus, this rabbi, this teacher, they didn't know what he was capable of that morning. They didn't know he was the Messiah. He calls these fishermen and they drop their nets and they immediately follow him. I don't know, maybe they were tired of coming home smelling like fish, I don't know, but I do know that there was a proximity to the king and they saw him and they knew him. They got a glimpse of him. They got a part of the presence of God and they were like, I need to follow that. I need to be with him. And so they dropped their nets and they immediately went with him. Some of you may have had some of that experience this morning. I heard some of the stories you're sharing you're going and and you're meeting people and you're being the hands and feet of Jesus. You're praying for them. Maybe in the midst of worship, you felt closer to Jesus. And here's the thing, we want to be careful because I'm not a fan of emotionalism. Emotionalism is not going to last. These mountaintop experiences, if they're not grounded in the person of Jesus, they're going to be gone in two weeks. So if in two weeks, you look back and you're like, man, that was amazing. Where was Jesus? Or where's Jesus now? I would challenge that, that maybe you had a really good emotional experience, but not an experience rooted in the person of Jesus. And at the end of the day, I don't care about the emotion. I care about Jesus. Here's the thing. Real surrender is always going to have a tangible action they had to drop their nets. They had to walk away from the things that they knew. They didn't know exactly what they were getting into. Fishing was their life. Fishing was how they made money. Fishing is how they provided for their family. They, they took that and they threw it away to pursue the only king that actually matters. They had proximity to Here's the thing. I, I've been in youth ministry now for about two decades because I'm really old, as many people have pointed out. Somebody earlier today was like, Brian, it'd be okay if you just like dyed your beard. Nobody would know. Um, I was like, that hurts and cuts a little bit too deep. 
uh, and I would know, and that's all that matters. Uh, no offense to anyone dying in theaters in here. I'm still on judgment a little bit. Uh, here's the thing. I've seen way too many students try and figure this out on their own. The problem of sin is a bike lock that hangs from your neck. And I've seen students try really hard to get out of their brokenness and to get out of their sin and, and to do away with it or to set it aside or to not look at it anymore or fill in the blank. But at the end of the day, it is Jesus and Jesus alone that can deal with this problem. It's only him. The key that you think you have that's going to fit in here, that's, that's not Jesus, it's not going to work. It's going to end poorly. Jesus steps into the picture because he knows we can't do it. Luke 23, it says this, two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they know not what they're doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. You see, Jesus knew that we had this problem with sin. And he knew that we couldn't do anything about it. So he went, he was beaten. He was absolutely destroyed physically, long even before he got up on that cross. And he was hung, this perfect, blameless, Beside two criminals. And his response as he hung on that cross was, Father, forgive them. Here's the thing. If you're in this space right now and you're curious about this person of Jesus and, and you feel like, I don't know if maybe he could forgive me. In the process of being crucified, his thoughts were towards forgiveness. Like that, I can't even fathom what that would be like. I can't even put myself in a headspace where I could forgive you if you were hanging me on a cross. I couldn't do it. And yet that's the headspace of Jesus. And some of us, as we are in the midst of our brokenness, we feel like, no, 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 God is not okay with me. He doesn't love me. He could never love me. I'm not enough. But the beautiful thing is, whatever your sin, whatever your brokenness, Jesus did not get up off that cross. Think about your worst, deepest sin. Jesus was aware of it, mindful of it even, while he was hanging on that cross, while he was being beaten to death. And at no point did he say, no, 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 that's, that's the line. I'm done now. I'm done. Instead of saying, I'm done, he's saying, it is finished. And that is what we get to have as a result of the sacrifice that he gave. But here's the thing, and this is my challenge for tonight as we, as we continue on and we move into worship. There are a lot of people in proximity to the king. But proximity alone is not sufficient for salvation. 
can be around the king. You can even be intrigued by the king. You can even be enamored with the king and what he might be able to do. But without active faith that is surrendered to the king, there is no actual life. You see this in the crowds that surrounded him at the point of his crucifixion. The people stood watching and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself if this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. So on Jesus' mind is, Lord, forgive them for what they do. And it's on the mind of so many around him to no end. So repentance and life change only happens in proximity to the king, but proximity alone is not sufficient. I think sometimes we get it twisted in our world. We feel like we just have this happy emotional moment with Jesus, and that's what saves us. When we read in Galatians 2.20, it says this, I've been crucified with Christ. That's a pretty active idea, right? That you're crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. What Brian Rogers wants does not matter. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith. And we're going to come back to that word faith. Because I think in our world, we've taken that word and we've made it something it's not. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So this Greek word that is used for faith in the midst of this is pistis. It's a word that we translate faith, and I don't think there's even a wrong a problem with the word faith. It's, it's what we've done with the word faith in our culture because language evolves over time. Faith in a lot of people's minds is just like an intellectual belief. Like if I believe that Jesus did these things, then that's what matters. But here's what I would say is that faith in this context cannot be simply an intellectual exercise. It is probably equally uh, better or uh, in our current language to say allegiance because allegiance means that we actually act on what it is. We actually have to do something. And let's be clear, you are not saved by your works. You are only saved by the work of the cross. But your works show that you understand what it means to be saved by the work of the cross. And I'm afraid that I've seen a lot of people in proximity to the person of Jesus that don't take seriously what it means to have an actual allegiance to Jesus. And so I'm going to invite the band up and I want to challenge us on this. This is probably a harder challenge than we would typically give on a Saturday morning. But here's the thing. Jesus isn't calling you to a good time. You're going to have a good time doing a lot of things. Jesus isn't calling you to a mountaintop emotional moment. Like the lights, all that stuff, that's, that's good and fine. 
But Jesus calls us to repentance, and he calls us to follow him. And repentance has become a dirty word, but it's not. It's a beautiful word. It means that you are no longer facing this direction, this direction that leads to death, to demise, to pain, to suffering. You're now turned this direction and running towards the cross, towards the person of Jesus. And so tonight, we're going to have actually the leaders, if you guys don't mind getting up and kind of standing around while we just open the door. Uh, we don't do uh, altar call-ish type things here because uh, I wrestle with how that goes. But here's what I want to do. I think there's people in this room who probably feel their proximity to the church or your proximity to the idea of Jesus has been sufficient for you. It's been enough. You don't really need to give up anything. You don't really need to turn away from that stuff. You're, you're good with this direction and you're kind of like trying to hold hands with Jesus and draw him this way with you. But the problem, Jesus isn't over here in the death. Jesus is over here. He calls us to repent, to turn, and to walk towards him, to run towards him. So here is the challenge. I'm going to ask all of you to stand if you feel comfortable with that, if you're able to. Jesus doesn't want people to simply be around him. He wants people's allegiance to him. Their surrendered allegiance. And sometimes that starts with saying,
surrender and say, I'm